everyone, and welcome to another episode of Off Script by the APHA ASP Policy Standing Committee. My name is Megan Wright, and I'm a member of your 2021-2022 Policy Standing Committee. For those of you new to Off Script, this podcast is intended to be an informative, interview-based series that encourages our listeners to think outside the prescription pad. Today, we'll be discussing APHA ASP's resolution 21.2, titled Medication-Assisted Treatment in Vulnerable Patient Populations. If you're interested in the specific language of the resolution, head over to pharmacist.com to take a closer look. I'm so excited to welcome two guests to Off Script today. Today, I'm joined by Morgan Bazell and Dr. Courtney Wilson. Hi, Megan. Thanks for having me today. My name is Morgan Bazell, and I am a final year student pharmacist at the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy. And this past June, I served as a group leader at the 2021 Virtual APHA Institute on Substance Use Disorder. Thank you so much, Morgan. And it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Courtney Wilson, who received her undergraduate degrees from the University of Georgia and her Doctor of Pharmacy from the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy. She completed an ASHP accredited residency at the Boise VA Medical Center. She currently works at the Charles George VA in Asheville, North Carolina, and is an Associate Professor of Clinical Education with the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy. Her areas of interest are chronic pain, opioid use disorder, and innovative pharmacy services. She speaks nationally on opioid use disorder and opioid stewardship. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Wilson. Glad to be here. Okay, so Dr. Wilson, I'm so happy to talk to you today. Um, I actually just wanted to start off by asking, so this name of the resolution says medication-assisted treatment, but I've heard that the name is actually changed to medications for opioid use disorder. So could you talk about why that change was made and what kind of prompted it? Absolutely. So this has been a shift that we have seen over the past several years to move away from that older language of medication-assisted therapy to the newer language, medications for opioid use disorder, or really just calling it what it is, which is just treating opioid use disorder. Um, and the reason for this shift is the, the stigma with that old language implies that medications in and of themselves are not enough to treat opioid use disorder, that medications are assisting some other type of therapy. But what the data has clearly demonstrated is that medications for opioid use disorder by themselves reduce morbidity and mortality. So we know that medications alone are effective for reducing mortality and treating opioid use disorder. So, so that is the main reason why we're shifting away from that medication-assisted therapy to the medications for opioid use disorder language. Okay, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so kind of going off of the stigma that you were talking about, you know, I've heard before people say that medications for opioid use disorder is basically just trading one addiction for another, quote unquote. Um, but could you talk about that? And then if there are any other myths surrounding medications for opioid use disorder that you've heard? Yeah, you know, that is a common question that comes up when I'm talking with providers or even patients or family members of patients. You know, folks are really worried that we're just trading one addiction for another. But what we're actually seeing is that with opioid use disorder, you have this 
deficiency in dopamine that develops over time. And so what happens is when you're using opioids, whether it's prescription opioids or non-medical opioids like heroin or fentanyl, what happens is over a period of time with repeated exposure, you get this decrease in dopamine in the brain. And that's what leads to all of these, these symptoms of the disease state that tend to stigmatize this disease state. So what the medications are doing is we are replacing that dopamine in a medication form. So these medications, when you're taking them, whether it's the methadone or the buprenorphine, what those are doing is they're replacing that dopamine in the brain to help kind of stabilize the cravings. They also can help stabilize that withdrawal. Uh, but by and large, what we do not see are some of those behaviors that define this disease state. So the cravings, um, the using more than intended, using despite social and health consequences, you don't see those same types of behaviors that characterize this disease state when people are using methadone and buprenorphine products. What, what happens actually in the opposite is that people tend to stabilize. They, they stop using non-medical opioids. They have fewer of those cravings. They are able to get a job or able to stabilize the relationships in their life. So really the, the opposite happens. Uh, we're not really <laughs> trading that addiction for another. We're actually treating the addiction. Um, and so that's where when I'm talking to patients and family members and providers, the messaging is, is really around, you know, what are those behaviors that define opioid use disorder? And are we seeing those behaviors when we're on these medications? And by and large, the answer is no, we're not. But just like you mentioned that, that myth and the stigma there, you know, there are so many uh, myths that come along with medications for opioid use disorder. Um, and a lot of it is just tied to the stigma that this patient population has to endure. Thank you. Thank you. That's a really great explanation. Um, and another thing for medications for opioid use disorder, is there any sort of length of treatment or is it kind of just patient specific? How long are patients generally on these medications? Patients can take these medications for as long as they want to and are receiving <laughs> benefits. <laughs> that is uh, my catchphrase that I say over and over and over and over again. So you can be on this medication for as long as you want to and you are receiving benefit. Um, the data shows that you know, treatment for less than 90 days, so these kind of rapid detoxes that people will talk about, that's no better than placebo. So just starting the medication and stopping it over a short period of time, it, it can help with those withdrawal symptoms as people stop using, um, but abstinence-based therapy doesn't work, right? So we know that uh, short durations of treatment have no benefit over placebo. Ideally, at least one year, up to three to five years is where the best data is. But when I'm talking to patients, I will say, as long as you want to be on this and you're receiving benefit, we will continue on it. Great. This is all so fascinating. It's such an interesting area for me where we as pharmacists have such a specific role that we can play with our patients. Um, so how did you become involved with this patient population to start out with? 
So I was working in a large family medicine academic practice. So we had you know, medical residents, pharmacy residents, all sorts of interdisciplinary team members. And I'm here in North Carolina. So I was working as a CPP. So I had my prescribing privileges as well. Um, and so a highly integrated team-based care kind of setting, doing bread and butter and care, you know, diabetes, hypertension, lipids. That's what I was trained to do. And that's what I did for a very long time. But over time, um, it was about 2015, what we saw was we had patients in our family medicine clinic who were asking for treatment. You know, they were coming to our team and saying, I have a problem, I can't stop using, I need help. Um, and we, we had you know, incidences where the time it took us to connect that patient to a provider in the community who could treat their opioid use disorder, you know, we were having negative outcomes. We have, were having patients overdose. You know, we had one, one person who passed away, unfortunately. So that was our big wake-up call of saying, hey, we're family medicine. You know, we do bread and butter, cradle to grave. We can treat opioid use disorder the same way we treat any other chronic disease state. So that's really kind of where I got involved. Um, it was it was the need in our patients. And then from there, we needed a champion to, to learn about it. Because at the time, you know, none of us were, were taking care of opioid use disorder. And it was a little intimidating and scary. And it was a new topic. And you know, there's a lot of stigma associated with this patient population. So there were some fears there. Um, and we needed a champion to, to learn about it and to translate that to the practice. And that's where you know the pharmacy team, myself in particular, came in to be able to put some structure and research this disease state and how we could treat it, and then to spread that to all of our providers. Great, thank you. So I feel like there's a lot of, like you've mentioned, there's a lot of different types of barriers to care with opioid, opioid use disorder. Um, so what kind of vulnerable populations are you normally seeing impacted by this? Absolutely. So, you know, we were starting in just a general family medicine practice. So in the beginning, we were seeing folks who were just our regular patients. Some were definitely meeting that criteria of a vulnerable population just based on the, the patient panel we had, but certainly not all. We, we, we had not really dived into those kind of classic vulnerable populations that you would think about. Um, but over time we did, you know, as we got more experience and, and learned more about this disease state, you know, the places that we, we really saw the most need with integrating treatment of opioid use disorder into primary care, um, one was in pregnancy. Um, so pregnancy is super scary, right, to have an opioid use disorder um, in pregnancy is, is very, very intimidating for a lot of people. And so fortunately for us, and we are family medicine, but we also partnered with our, our colleagues who are OB-GYN. And so we were able to offer um, treatment for opioid use disorder in pregnancy for the Western part of the state, which was a big um, need in our community. So pregnancy is a big issue. Um, the underinsured and uninsured so North Carolina um, is a non-Medicaid expansion state. So we have a large population of folks who don't have insurance. And the classic way of 
of treating opioid use disorder has always been kind of these separated facilities, right? So you think about the methadone clinic is kind of the classic example that you think about. But even to get buprenorphine containing medications, those, you know, you, you would go to a separate facility outside of your, your regular doctor's office. And what a lot of times what we were seeing is that insurances weren't covering those treatments or that um, those places weren't taking insurance. They'd only take cash pay. And that was a huge issue for, for patients. You know, I, it's, can you imagine spending $400, $500 a month to treat your disease state? I mean, it's just not sustainable. Um, so that is that was a big issue with folks who were uninsured and underinsured. So that that has continued to be a challenge over the past you know six seven years. That has gotten better. You know, a lot of insurance companies now require coverage of these medications and the and these services. So that gap has closed significantly. But especially in non Medicaid expansion states, we'll continue to see. Um, the uninsured and underinsured having challenges getting access to care. Well, as our sole policy standing committee representative, and you talking a little bit about North Carolina specifically being a non-Medicaid expansion state, what can students or pharmacists kind of get involved in the policy aspect to really be able to be advocates for our patient, both on a state and federal level? That's a great question. There's a lot of ways that that we can get engaged to help with increasing access to medications for opioid use disorder. You know, so students have the advantage of being in a lot of different places, right? They go through the community setting, they go through these AM care settings, inpatient side of things. So they really get the continuity of care that you know, once you're out in practice, you don't necessarily see anymore unless you're in a, a niche position where you go across all of those, those places. So you know, that is a really important role that students have to kind of step back and see the bigger, the bigger picture. You know, the insurance coverage, like I was mentioning, is a, is a really important place for, for students to, to advocate, right? So we don't have Medicaid expansion here. Many states do, but we don't here in North Carolina. So that is a big impact that we're seeing. So from a pharmacy side, in the, in the dispensing role, there are issues with patients not being able to get, you know, multiple fills in a month. So when we're starting some of these buprenorphine products, you know, we'll, we'll give weak supplies essentially, you know, as we're titrating that dose. And so that is an issue sometimes on the dispensing side of being able to get those multiple fills in a month. Um, There are issues with insurance companies on the inpatient side, potentially not covering different, uh, uh, starting medications, continuing medications for opioid use disorder, if the primary diagnosis is something different. So there's all sorts of different places where where students can get engaged in that respect. You know, one thing that we see across the board is, is, you know, as a pharmacist, like I was saying here in North Carolina, I'm a clinical pharmacist practitioner. And so I'm able to prescribe as much Oxycontin as I want, right? I, I choose not to, ideally. <laughs> but, you know, as a, as a pharmacist with prescriptive authority and a DEA license, I am able to do that. 
Um, but at a federal level, I am not able to prescribe buprenorphine containing medications. And so that is limited to a very short list of providers who can get their DEAX waiver. And so this waiver is kind of an extra hoop that these providers have to jump through. And then at that point, they're still limited to the number of patients that they can take care of, um, depending on kind of the level of waiver that they have. But again, you know, as a pharmacist, I, I have a DEA license and I'm able to prescribe all the opioids that I want, but I'm not able to prescribe uh, you know, buprenorphine. So in that, in that setting where I'm working in a family medicine practice and I'm taking care of patients with opioid use disorder right along our physician colleagues, there is a significant barrier that we have from a logistical standpoint because I wasn't able to do that particular piece of it. So that's another really important place that we all can be advocating for our profession and for the, the advanced practice of being able to be wavered to have that DEA license as well. Yeah, I think that's very true. And like you talked about, you know, students are in and out of you know, a million different rotations. And one of the things that I really, you know, took advantage of when I was on my community rotation was the ability to write, you know, for naloxone using our standing orders. And that's something that, you know, while we may not be able to treat directly, we can give them preventative measures and make sure that they have access. Um, and so I know that's something that students have really been able to be a part of, is especially in North Carolina, but I believe in all 50 states, you know, pharmacists have the ability with a standing order to be able to help prescribe that naloxone. Absolutely. So the naloxone prescribing is so important, right? And so we see that in opioid use disorder, um, obviously, right, because these are folks who are at a very high risk of having an opioid-related overdose, um, whether they are currently using or whether they are in early recovery or even long-term recovery, you know, that is still a very high-risk population. And so thinking about naloxone and making sure we're having those conversations and discussing that with our patients is so very important. This is one of the highest risk populations that we have for an opioid related overdose. So I think we talk about naloxone a lot in terms of patients who are prescribed opioids for pain. Um, and sometimes we have a harder time having that conversation uh, with patients with an opioid use disorder because it feels for me, at least it feels more real. Like, and it feels kind of scary to have that conversation, right? Cause a lot of these folks probably have, have had an opioid related overdose or have seen someone close to them who have had an opioid related overdose. So they have even more knowledge and context to that. Um, so it can sometimes either feel, oh, I don't need to talk to them about it because they know already, or sometimes it can feel a little more intimidating to talk about it um, because, because it's so close, it hits, it hits home so hard. So I've actually seen either extreme um, pan out in practice, even myself, sometimes I'll forget to talk about it. So I completely agree. I think you know, advocating for naloxone and, and, you know, making sure that all patients have access to it. Right. And even us, right. You know, a lot of standing orders, allow anybody who, who could potentially reverse a patient um, 
and it doesn't even have to be in a medical setting, right? So I carry naloxone. North Carolina's standing order allows me as an individual citizen to carry naloxone, and I do. So, you know, I, I would encourage y'all to think about that as well. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, whenever I was in class, I was involved with Generation RX, which is now referred to as Operation Substance Use Disorder through my school's chapter of APHA ASP. And some things that we did, we would make naloxone kits at school with the North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition that could then be distributed out through the community. And then also we would do presentations to undergraduates, but then also just out in the community as well, because we found that there's such a negative stigma or there can be surrounding naloxone because some people might not want to take it because they think that you're viewing them as someone that would overdose or something. And so we found that educating the public really kind of helped bridge the gap with that. But I can only imagine how hard that's been now during this COVID-19 pandemic. So how have you seen that kind of affect this patient population? It is so, so, so scary, Morgan. That That is a really just super challenging place where we're finding ourselves right now. You know, opioid use disorder is a disease. You'll hear it sometimes people talk about like a disease of isolation or a disease of despair. And those are some heavy terms, right? To there, there are some, some, you know, language attached to those, those terms there, but you know, it's true. You know, I think that a lot of people who have an opioid use disorder are struggling even more in this time period where all of us are feeling some isolation and are feeling some despair, honestly. So the rates of opioid related overdoses have increased significantly since 2020, since the the onset of what we have realized is is the pandemic. Um, So we have drastically seen those numbers increase. And a lot of it is issues going back to forced isolation, um, issues around losing some stability, right? So a lot of people are losing jobs, losing child child care, right? With schools and daycares closing. Um, So a lot of stressors, I think all of us have experienced that to some degree. There are a lot of stressors these past 18 months. And what we're seeing is that folks who are, who are, experiencing an opioid use disorder are feeling that isolation and those impacts significantly. So now is a an really important time to be talking about naloxone for all of our patients, but especially those with an opioid use disorder. Um, you know, and I would also think about, this is a little bit of a, a segue, but as I'm thinking about um, naloxone in particular, you know, the other patient population that is highly vulnerable is those who are being released from a a controlled environment. So whether that is rehab or like a detox facility or a period of incarceration um, where they, in theory, are not using regularly, if you leave an environment like that and you go back to an environment where you were previously using, that is another really big trigger and, and place where you have a higher risk of having an opioid-related overdose. One, because you're going back to an environment that 
all of those old triggers are there, right? So you're getting these little dopamine bumps just by seeing people that you used to use with or seeing the the items and the the tools that you used to use and able to to be able to use. So you know, all of those are are actually causing these little dopamine bumps in your brain that are making it more likely that you will have those cravings and, and want to use. So one, you're just kind of returning to a surrounding that's going to make it more likely that you use. Um, but also, if you had a period of non-use, you've lost all of your tolerance, right? So you used to be able to, 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 to have a certain amount of you know, heroin or fentanyl, whatever it might be, that was fine and you were always okay and you never had any issues. And then you have a period of, of abstinence where you're not using and then you go back and use what you were doing before. And that is, again, you've lost all your tolerance. And so that's a really high risk situation for an opioid related overdose. So that's another one of those vulnerable populations, kind of going back to your earlier question that I think about. Um, is is really important for us to be targeting with some of these efforts for harm reduction, both for starting medications for opioid use disorder, um, but also to make sure that people have access to naloxone and syringes for non-medical use as well. Yeah, that's a, that's really interesting. I feel like that's a patient population that we don't really think about. So it's really important that we talk about it. Um, so thank you for talking about that. And then kind of going off of what you just said, what are some other harm reduction strategies that we currently use for these patients? Right. So just as a big definition of harm reduction, I think there's a lot of different ways that people could look at this. Um, the way that I think about harm reduction is just to encourage safer use, right? So I'm accepting a world where people will use drugs and my role as a healthcare professional is to try to encourage safer use, um, potentially with the, with the long-term goal of stopping use, um, but not, not necessarily, right? So sometimes my goal is just to move that needle, get you on that continuum to safer use. So things that we think about, so one naloxone is, is a big part of that. Medications for opioid use disorder are a big part of that. So just treating, treating the disease state, right, is going to help reduce use. It uh, seems pretty obvious, but alas, here we are having this conversation. Um, so treating medication, treating opioid use disorder with medications is really important. Syringes for non-medical use are so, so, so important. You know, the data is very clear on access to syringes for non-medical use. So we see a drastic decrease in the transmission of hep C and HIV. We see reduced rates of endocarditis and abscesses and other skin and soft tissue infections. We see decrease, it, when, we, when we have syringe service programs in place where people are, are, have a place where they can go to get syringes for non-medical use, in those communities, we actually see decreased law enforcement sticks. So people who are working in law enforcement being accidentally stepping on a needle, essentially. We see less um, drug use in a community. So we, we actually do not see more drug use in a community. We see either less or hold stable. It's the data is a little, little uh, um, debatable on that one, but we do not see more drug use in a community. Um, and we see most syringes are returned. So there's actually less less syringes out there that are inappropriately disposed of. So whether you're working with patients 
in a way that you can actually work in one of those syringe service programs or whether you're just at a, a community pharmacy and you're able to sell syringes for non-medical use. You know, I highly encourage you to, to think about that. Um, and if you're at a place, especially as a student right now, you know, you might not be able to do that if you're in a setting that you're, you know, the, the pharmacy itself isn't able to do that or is choosing not to do that. So in those situations, you know, you can have some of those conversations and ask the questions in that curious and non-judgmental way of, you know, why are we not selling these syringes and try to plant that seed? But the other thing you can do is you can always know where the local syringe services are in your community and you can connect patients to those places if you're not able to sell directly. So, you know, always trying to connect people to, to syringes for non-medical use is really important. Yeah, thank you. I, I know I've had experiences being in pharmacies that didn't sell syringes unless patients had a prescription. And it was really frustrating after working with Generation Rx and going to the Institute. And so I did have some of those conversations and it was really interesting to see kind of how their opinions maybe changed after I spoke with them. So thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, sometimes it just takes those one-on-one -on -one conversations and, you know, everybody adapts to kind of these different harm reduction strategies in different ways and at different paces. And um, so it might seem very foreign to someone. Um, and it, in some ways, it does seem kind of logical, right? Like you want me to, to you know, give someone the tools they're going to need to use. If I just don't give you the tool, then you just won't use, right? So, I mean, there, there is some logic. I understand why, why people may, may feel that way. Um, but again, as, as healthcare professionals, you know, we, we, uh, we try to anchor in on the evidence-based medicine. And what the evidence shows us is that, um, you know, we have people who engage in a syringe service program are five times more likely to engage in treatment at some point. Um, so just the, the, ability to have a compassionate conversation with someone and, and try to um, move move that needle just a little bit is is sometimes the most important for, thing for us to be doing. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, I even think as someone, you know, when I was preparing for this and talking to Morgan, something as simple as she said, don't call them users, don't say they're getting clean. You know, I think that those things are small anecdotal things we may hear on TV or have in our head and kind of, you know, beginning to change that concept in our mind is really one of the first steps that students can really take to, you know, help and you know, as we're working and towards that farm D, you know, something small we can do. That's a great point, Megan. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think, you know, words matter, right? And, and there's a lot of guidance out there. And, and you know, when we, when we talk about substance use disorders, it can feel uncomfortable and people can kind of stumble over words like, oh gosh, did I say that the right way? Was I supposed to say it this way? And that's okay. And, you know, and when I'm teaching this and when I'm talking about it, I own it when I say something that, oh man, I shouldn't have said that. This is the way I should have said it, right? And try to model that. Um, there are a lot of great resources out there on kind of the, the best language to use. Um, so if you're not sure of what, what words are the best words to use, there are going to be lots of resources that are available for you. Um, so you can just Google words matter, opioid use disorder, and you'll find all sorts of things. But yeah, you know, saying things, 
you know, try not to say clean and dirty because if you're clean, that implies you're dirty at some point, which is, you know, that's not anything somebody wants to be called, right? So yeah, choosing those words wisely. And ultimately, even if you mess up, the, the big piece is that we approach everybody with compassion. You know, we are curious, non-judgmental in approaching you with compassion and that will come across. I think that is the perfect way to end. I was going to ask you one last question, but I think, you know, just ending with the message of being compassionate caregivers and compassionate people is so important, especially just with everything going on right now. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you both Morgan and Dr. Wilson for taking the time to chat with me and our listeners today. It has been a great conversation and I appreciate both of y'all's time. Thank Absolutely. You so Thank you.